Not many concepts from physics inspire as much intrigue as the idea of extra dimensions does. They sound like science fiction, and yet some of our most advanced theories of physics suggest that they might be real. We've talked about extra dimensions before in a whole episode we dedicated to it, number 25, if you want to go back, and also in our episodes on string theory. But today we're going even deeper, and we're going to talk about the actual searches that physicists have conducted looking for extra dimensions in experiments. This episode of Why This Universe is supported by Wondrium. Wondrium is a mind-blowing subscription service that offers thousands of video and audio courses on a huge range of topics. I've been a big fan and a regular consumer of Wondrium's content for the past 15 years or so, and over that time I've listened to dozens of their courses, including ones on history, philosophy, literature, math, and science. For me, it's kind of like taking an intro-level university course from a great professor on a subject you've always wanted to know more about, but without the big tuition fee and all in the comfort of your own home or daily commute. I've recently started listening to a series of lectures on Wondrium called Theories of Knowledge, How to Think About What You Know. The subject of epistemology is probably my favorite area of philosophy, and this course is, provides a great introduction in all the deep and messy questions that come with trying to figure out what we really know and how and why we know what we know. So if you want to learn more about epistemology or really just about anything else, give Wondrium a try. You can sign up for Wondrium now through our special URL to get a month of unlimited access for free. Just go to wondrium.com slash universe. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E. You're listening to Why This Universe, a podcast where we break down the biggest ideas in physics. I'm Shalma Wegsman. And I'm Dan Hooper. As far as we've ever been able to tell, our universe seems to have three dimensions of space, and one of time. But for a long time now, physicists have been pondering if there might be more than three spatial dimensions, some extra dimensions of space that we can't access for some reason. For this to be possible, there would have to be a pretty good reason for us to not have noticed these extra dimensions by now. For example, maybe they are rolled up in a really tight circle too small for us to enter. You might wonder why physicists would even bother pondering such a strange hypothesis, but it turns out that the existence of extra dimensions can actually help physics build theories like string theory and other theories to explain quantum gravity. That all sounds very abstract, but let's bring this down to Earth. How is it that we can expect to actually probe these extra dimensions in a real-life experiment? It turns out that if these extra dimensions are big enough, if they're like literally large enough, they could noticeably change the behavior of things like gravity and change the way that matter and energy might behave in our highest energy particle colliders. So we can use particle colliders like the Large Hadron Collider to try to access these extra dimensions. To understand how this works, we have to think about what a fourth dimension of space might look like to us. If that fourth dimension were like the other three, we would have noticed it a long time ago. Okay. It, you know, space would be very, very different from what we are used to seeing. So instead, let's imagine that this extra dimension is wrapped up in a tiny little circle. This is what a physicist would call a compactified extra dimension. Here I have something in mind, like a situation where if you moved in the direction of the extra dimension, 
you'd quickly get back to where you started, kind of like circumnavigating the globe by moving along the equator or something. So what I want you to think about is if an extra dimension like this, a compactified extra dimension existed, like, you know, how would we perceive it? What would it look like to us? Since these compactified dimensions would have to exist at really small scales here, we have to turn to our good friend quantum mechanics for answers. Quantum mechanics tells us that everything we think of as a particle is also a wave with some characteristic wavelength, called its de Broglie wavelength after the French physicist Louis de Broglie. The value of this wavelength is related to the object's momentum. The more momentum an object has, the smaller its de Broglie wavelength. So you can think of things, particles with a whole lot of momentum or energy as small things, things with small wavelengths, and things with low amounts of momentum as bigger things. So if the extra dimension in question is really small, then only particles with a lot of momentum, a lot of energy, will be able to fit in the size of that extra dimension. So only very energetic particles will experience or otherwise perceive the presence of that extra dimension. This means that in our ordinary experience, like what we see every day of our lives, nothing around us would be able to move through a very small extra dimension. We just wouldn't know it was there. We just we, Space would look three-dimensional to us. So to have a chance at probing these very small extra dimensions, we need very energetic particles. And there's no better place for those than at high-energy particle colliders like the Large Hadron Collider which accelerates protons to almost the speed of light and collides them together about a billion times a second. So if you take one of these protons, a 6.8 TV proton at the, at the LAC, the wavelength of that particle turns out to be about 10 to the minus 19 meters. So they're really, really small. So in principle, the LAC might be able to make particles that can move around an extra dimension that is on the order of magnitude of 10 to the minus 19 meters or, or larger. So that's like, that's the smallest dimension that we could hope to test at the Large Hadron Collider. Let's say that in one of these collisions at the LAC, I, I happen to get a particle moving in the direction of one of the extra dimensions. For simplicity, let's also just say that it just doesn't happen to be moving in the other three dimensions of space, okay? It's purely moving along the direction of the extra dimension. So what would this look like to us? Well, this particle, let's say it's an electron, for example, would have all of the properties of a normal electron. It would still have the same electric charge and all those sorts of things. And although it would be moving at almost the speed of light around the extra dimension, we wouldn't perceive this movement. After all, the extra dimension is absolutely tiny. We, we can't see the extra dimension of space. So to us, this electron would look like it's just sitting there at rest. But at the same time, this electron would have a lot of kinetic energy from the movement it's doing in the extra dimension of space. So what we're talking about here is an electron that doesn't seem to be moving, but that has a lot of kinetic energy. And according to Einstein and relativity, something that has a lot of energy and isn't moving is really just something with a lot of mass. In other words, this electron that's moving around the tiny extra dimension will look to us just like an ordinary electron, except with much, much more mass. So if after a collision at the LHC, we see something that seems to be an electron, but with an unusually large mass we might wonder if it's actually an electron traveling in an extra dimension. 
We call particles in this kind of configuration a Kaluza-Klein state, or maybe sometimes a Kaluza-Klein excitation. This is uh, named after the two physicists in the early 20th century, uh, Kaluza and Klein, who, who worked on this sort of stuff back in the day. And there isn't just one Kaluza-Klein state for that electron. Or in other words, there isn't only one strangely large mass that it can have. But this electron can't have any mass either. It turns out that it can have one of many distinct masses, depending on how it's moving through the extra dimension. So remember to think of this electron here less like a particle and more like a wave. You can imagine a wave traveling through a guitar string as an analogy. That wave can exist on the guitar string with a wavelength equal to the length of the string, or half the length of the string, or a quarter of the string, and so on. The same goes for our electron moving through the extra dimension. So an electron could be moving around an extra dimension such that its wavelength is equal to one times the circumference of that extra dimension, or two times the circumference, or three or four, or whatever, so, so on and so forth, all the way to infinity. And in each case, that particle would have a different amount of momentum and kinetic energy, and therefore would appear to us to have a different amount of mass. So, for example, let's say that the extra dimension in question is about 10 to the minus 18 meters. So this is kind of about the, the smallest extra dimension we could hope to probe at one of these machines. In this case, the first Kaluza-Klein state of the electron would correspond to an electron with a apparent mass of about 1 TeV. And then there would be a second Kaluza-Klein state that would look like a 2 TeV electron. And then there'd be a third state that looks like a 3 TeV electron, and so on and so forth. There's an infinite tower of these Kaluza-Klein states. Um, and if we had a powerful enough particle collider, uh, we'd be able to create and study a whole series of these Kaluza-Klein excitations. And I, I don't know about everyone, but I think most physicists, if you started to see this tower, you saw, you know, a whole bunch of electron-like particles with, like, the regularly spaced um, uh, distribution of masses, this would pretty, pretty, be pretty convincing that you were looking at evidence of an extraspatial dimension. So the Large Hadron Collider has been running for a while, and we still haven't seen any of these Kaluza-Klein states yet. But all hope is not necessarily lost. We can use the fact that we haven't seen anything like this to deduce that there can't be any extra dimensions larger than about 10 to the minus 18 meters, at least for the kinds of extra dimensions that we've been talking about so far. If compactified extra dimensions exist, then they have to be too small for us to be able to probe with our most powerful collider yet. Thankfully, though, these aren't the only kind of extra dimensions that physicists have come up with. A whole other idea of how to construct theories with extra dimensions was proposed back in 1998. Uh, this was proposed by a trio of theoretical physicists, Nimar Khani Hamad, Savas Demopoulos, and Gia Diwali. In their theory, which became known as the ADD model for their last names, there were extra dimensions of space, but unlike in the normal Kaluza-Klein theories that we've been talking about so far, most of the particles can't travel through the extra dimensions. Particles like, you know, photons, quarks, electrons, all the stuff we kind of know and love is confined to live in a three-dimensional subspace of the larger extra-dimensional space. This subspace they called a brain, B-R-A-N-E, and uh, we talked about these back in our episode on string theory, too. Instead of tiny dimensions that we don't fit into, these would be larger dimensions that we just don't have the ability to reach into. 
So how would these sorts of dimensions make themselves known to us at all? The difference between living in a three-dimensional universe and living in the kind of universe that uh, these physicists envisioned was that gravity, or the particles that communicate gravity, what we call gravitons, were free to move in the full extra dimensionality, the, the full four, five, six, whatever dimensionality of space. They aren't confined to the brain like the other particles are. This is a big part of what makes this kind of extra dimension so appealing to begin with. If gravity is leaking out from our three-dimensional world into this larger dimensional space, it might explain why the force of gravity appears so much weaker than the other forces of nature. This is a long-standing problem in theoretical physics, and it's known as a hierarchy problem. As far as we can tell, the force of gravity should be the same strength as the weak nuclear force, and yet we observe it to be much weaker. Now, these extra dimensions make it possible that the force of gravity actually is the same strength as the weak nuclear force, but is just leaking into the extra dimensions, making it appear to be much weaker than it really is. Okay, so let's put some numbers to what we're talking about here. If we want the weak force and the force of gravity to have, you know, deep down about the same strength, we could do this by introducing one new extra dimension of space, but that extra dimension of space, it turns out, would have to have a circumference of like a billion kilometers, okay? And that's way too big for any realistic theory. If there were a dimension like that, a dimension that were that big, it would really screw up how we observe gravity. It would make gravity pretty unrecognizable. If there was an extra dimension with the circumference of a billion kilometers, then the force of gravity would appear to be way stronger for objects that are less than a billion kilometers apart from each other. This would be um, immediately noticeable. This would screw up all sorts of dynamics in the solar system. It would certainly screw up, you know, apples falling from trees and all that sort of stuff. So, so obviously this can't be the case. This can't be the real theory. Instead, we need to consider the case where there are more than one of these extra dimensions. So if we want to make the weak force and the force of gravity deep down have the same strength, with two extra dimensions, those dimensions would have to be a few millimeters in circumference. In this case, you can try to test these theories by measuring the strength of gravity at submillimeter distances, but you have to go to like really carefully constructed laboratory experiments. So Physicists have built these sorts of experiments. They involve devices called torsion balances. And they try to look for departures from the inverse square law of Newtonian gravity at as short a distances as they possibly can. And so far, they haven't seen any departures. This one over distance squared seems to go down as far as they can measure. And basically, they've been able to rule out these scenarios with two extra dimensions so long as those those extra dimensions are larger than about 37 micrometers or about a 30th of a millimeter. So, you know, they're really pushing against this theory, um, at least in a lot of the parameter space that was originally envisioned by those authors. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior, with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Tell. 
So physicists have narrowed in on how big these extra dimensions could possibly be, but we can't rule them out just yet. Experiments like this can only really set an upper limit on the size of these extra dimensions based on the fact that they didn't find them. So let's stick with this story a bit longer and ask, what if there are these two extra dimensions of this sort that we've been talking about with circumferences smaller than 37 micrometers? How might we be able to see them? Well, let's think back to those Kaluza-Klein states that we mentioned earlier. Let's also think about gravity in the quantum way, as a force communicated by a particle called a graviton. In this framework, two bodies that are gravitating against each other are actually just exchanging a graviton. If gravity is really escaping into these extra dimensions, then gravitons will also experience those Kaluza-Klein states that we described the electrons experiencing as they move through the extra dimensions. So, maybe we can use the Large Hadron Collider to search for Kaluza-Klein states of the graviton, aka extra-heavy gravitons. It turns out this is going to be hard because gravity is so feeble. It is such a weak force that you're not going to make very many particles in any particular Kaluza-Klein state or mode. But if the dimensions are as big as we're talking about here, then, you know, at the at a machine with the energy of the Large Hadron Collider, you could make millions or billions of different Kaluza-Klein excitations. And when you add up the rates for producing those particles, add up all of the rates for all these billion different Kaluza-Klein states, it turns out that when you add all of those effects together, you can lead to some potentially observable consequences. You might be able to notice the effects of these Kaluza-Klein states and the collisions you're, you're studying. Another way that we could potentially see the effects of extra dimensions in a machine like the Large Hadron Collider is that these extra dimensions could make it possible for the collisions at this experiment to result in the creation of very small and very short-lived black holes. So it turns out the recipe to make a black hole is very, very simple. All you need to do is put enough mass in a small enough volume of space. Once you do that, you get a black hole. However, there is a limit to how little mass it takes to make a black hole. If your clump of mass is too small, it's not going to work. In ordinary three dimensions, without any extra dimensions of space, it turns out that the smallest black holes that can exist have a mass that is roughly equal to what is known as the Planck mass, about 10 to the minus 5 grams. Now, 10 to the minus 5 grams might seem like a very small amount of mass. It's like 1% of a paper clip or something like that. But to a particle physicist, this is actually a huge mass, okay? And the collisions at the Large Hadron Collider don't have anything close to enough energy to make a black hole this big. Not, not even close. But if there exist extra dimensions of space, then the minimum mass of a black hole is expected to be a lot smaller. For example, in the kinds of extra dimensions that we've been talking about, the ones, these 37 micrometer extra dimensions that are right in the boundary of being able to be tested um, in these torsion balance experiments, you could produce black holes, at least in principle, with masses as small as about 10 to the minus 21 grams. So this is 16 orders of magnitude smaller than the minimum black hole mass in ordinary three-dimensional gravity. And it turns out that this is an amount of energy that we could potentially, you know, cram together in a collision at the Large Hadron Collider. In fact, in this sort of model with these two extra dimensions, or these pretty large extra dimensions, 
The Large Hadron Collider should have already created a few hundred thousand black holes over the course of its uh, decade plus of operations. Now, I realize that to a lot of the listeners of this podcast, it might sound scary that we could be creating hundreds of thousands of black holes at LAC. But don't worry, this kind of black hole is uh, totally and utterly harmless. Back in the 1960s, Stephen Hawking and others worked out that black holes should radiate particles, okay, which will cause them to slowly become less massive and eventually disappear. And we call this process Hawking evaporation. And it turns out that the smaller a black hole it is, the faster it will evaporate. So if we had a black hole with a mass equal to the mass of the sun, this would last a long time, about 10 to the 67 years before it would disappear from Hawking evaporation. If you had a black hole with a mass of, you know, of a small asteroid, like 10 to the 15 grams, okay, that would take about 10 billion years, or roughly the age of the universe. If you had a black hole with a mass equal to the mass of the Sears Tower, it would take a few years for that black hole to evaporate entirely. And if you had a black hole with a mass of, of an automobile, like a car, it would take about a nanosecond. Okay, so the smaller, it, it, this is a very dramatic process. You make things a little bit smaller, they, they evaporate a lot faster. And the kinds of black holes we'd be making at the Large Hadron Collider would evaporate in something like 10 to the minus 36 seconds. So about as close to instantaneously as any process you can imagine in nature. So we can ask what these tiny and super short-lived black holes might look like at the LAC. Well, during the very short period of time that they exist, these black holes would be super hot. Their temperatures would be something like 10 to the 16 degrees. And in this state, these black holes would radiate extremely energetic particles, which we could hope to detect at the, in the particle detectors of the LAC. These events featuring black holes would produce a large number of different kinds of high-energy particles, like quarks, gluons, electrons, photons, and so on. And these would look like what the particle physicists call high-multiplicity events. So we've looked for these events, and we see plenty of high-multiplicity events, but so far those events look just like the standard model predicts, um, and there don't seem to be any you know, big signals of black hole production in the data set from the LHC, at least so far. And um, this can lead to constraints on these, these sort of theories that are comparable in sensitivity or in strength to those that we derive from things like torsion balance experiments. So next time on Why This Universe, I want to back up and dig a little deeper into the last part of this story. In particular, I want to talk about the possibility that we could create black holes at machines like the Large Hadron Collider. We'll talk about the physics of this, but I also want to talk about um, some sociology that took place back as the Large Hadron Collider was turning on. Some of you might remember this or some of you might not, but when the Large Hadron Collider was turning on back in 2008, there was a lot of panic, I would say irrational panic, among certain corners of the media about the possibility that this machine might be dangerous, maybe even dangerous to humankind. Why This Universe is brought to you by the University of Chicago Podcast Network. It's edited and produced by me, Shalma Wegsman, and my co-host is Dan Hooper, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Chicago and Fermilab. 
If you like our show and you want to support us even more, you can find us on Patreon. There you can access ad-free episodes of the show, as well as exclusive Ask Us Anything episodes where you get to ask Dan and I direct questions about physics or anything else. So if you are curious about that, you can find it at patreon.com slash whythisuniverse. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.